everyone, this is Kate, the founder of Loam, and you're tuning in to Loam Listen. Loam Listen is an expression of our belief at Loam that creative community can be a catalyst for resilience and reimagination in the heart of climate chaos. As the systems surrounding us collapse, it feels especially vital to nurture new ways of being through creating spaces for radical artists, activists, educators, and entrepreneurs in our community to share their stories on their terms. It's in that spirit that I am so excited to share my conversation with the badass Lucia Oliva Henley today. Lucia is the Community Development Manager at the Climate Advocacy Lab and a Zen practitioner who lives and practices at Dai Bosatsu Zendo, a Rinzai Zen monastery in the Catskill Mountains. Full disclosure, when I first met Lucia through Calliopeia Foundation Spiritual Ecology Fellowship, I did not talk to her. She was just so smart and so cool. But I'm truly grateful that we connected during a snowy hike through Bears Ears. She's become a dear friend and an invaluable work partner. Thank you so much for joining me, Lucia. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. It's really good to be here. And I crack up every time you mention how we met. And I, yeah, we didn't talk. (laughs) And I just thought you were maybe like the shyest person that I'd ever met. Um, But it happened and it's been great. (laughs) No, I was just like, this girl's not going to want to talk to me. (laughs) Uh, too funny. (laughs) I know it all worked out though. So something that I really admire about you is that you're the Stanford educated policy strategist, but your work is really grounded in mindfulness. You're living in a monastery right now, and you're also working full-time for the climate advocacy lab. So can you speak a little bit to how your spiritual practice shapes your climate work? Yeah, totally. Um, And I should just mention that if folks want to connect on like the nitty gritty of how you live on the grounds of a traditional Zen monastery and hold a nine to five job and are out in the world. That's a different conversation. But uh, just to name that, because that sounds a little crazy. But yeah, I think for me, a lot of my work, um, you know, when we when we take the climate crisis really seriously and look at it on its face, you look at the fact that we are really dealing with matters of life and death. And climate is not the only social issue, let's say, for which that's true. But the scale and the magnitude and the rapidity with which it is asking us to look at questions of life and death, not only for ourselves, but at very large global scales and at kind of existential scales, um, that was not something that was getting addressed or supported or any sort of kind of scaffolding through my work in a movement related to climate change that where I was situated was largely secular, uh, you know, that influence of science into the movement that moved us away from sheer faith and belief uh, and more into what is objectively observable, what's empirically observable. So I hit a point in my own development where I really realized that I needed support in engaging those issues if I wanted to continue to be effective. Uh, I think that there is some bypassing that is done either intentionally in some cases, but I think in a lot of cases, simply as a healthy response to what's going on, it's very hard to day to day consider one's own dying if we don't have support to do that and frameworks that help us understand that. But what we know is that 
it is the world's great wisdom traditions that have always supported humanity in engaging those questions, those questions of absolute importance. And so for me, working in the climate advocacy space necessitated searching for a deeper level of support that wasn't just like, what's my professional path and career trajectory? It wasn't just like, what are the goals of my work plan? Or do I think that I landed at the organization that has the most effective and promising strategic plan? It was actually like, how do I equip myself to keep coming back to this work day to day from an open hearted place where I understand that actually all the fear that I feel that is love-based, all of the urgency I feel that's love-based, like how can I keep coming back from a place that's really vulnerable in that way? Because that's what keeps it urgent. But then how do I like replenish my cup on a really regular basis? Because it's scary. It is scary. And it does create anxiety and it does provoke tears. So it was my work in that space that actually kind of intersected with some of my own kind of natural growth. Like I went to school and had been living in the Bay Area and grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, both places that are not only very politically progressive, let's say, but also places that have a lot of alternative ways of knowing, alternative ways of healing, a lot of different intersections of spiritual and religious traditions. And so I had kind of at the time was kind of like dabbling in different practices. I had developed a yoga practice that was really meaningful. I had friends starting to go off on meditation retreats and I had a little bit of like FOMO. I was like, maybe this is changing their lives. Um, so I ended up in some ways I kind of just got lucky. I was, I was what I call Zen curious. I was, I'd done a couple of retreats and I was like, huh, I'm kind of interested in this. And then the first time I came to Daibosatsu Zendo, which is a traditional Japanese Rinzai Zen monastery in the Catskill Mountains of central New York, I just very quickly had a connection and knew that this would be a spiritual home for me. And it's been an evolution to get to the point where I'm actually living at, working from, and also practicing at Daibosatsu, but then I'm still able to maintain a job where I'm working remotely. And that for me has felt like the right construct. It has felt like having the basis of my day-to-day -day be very connected to a spiritual practice and to that framework uh, feels like the right support to then spend my day-to-day, -day, like a lot of my waking life actually thinking about how do we make our, our climate movement in the United States stronger and more effective. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Lucia. Something you said that really resonated with me is how this work has kind of inspired you to examine how your fear and your urgency and anxiety are really love-based, right? They're all like expressions and extension of a deep love for this earth. And it really got me thinking when you're experiencing climate grief, right? When you're experiencing like deep existential fear um, and, and the type of urgency that can create like panic, how how do you bring yourself back to center? What particular practices have been of service to you for navigating those big emotions and really remembering that they're grounded ultimately in love? Yeah, thanks, Kate. That's a really sweet question. I think there are maybe three things that come to mind. First, and maybe like the low-hanging fruit on this, is, is spiritual practice and actually having a contemplative practice. I think, you know, the, the idea of mindfulness has gotten really popular lately. But in the Zen practice, we sit down and at 
the core of the practice is the breath. You really learn to sit with yourself following your breath through whatever arises. And in that, there's a deepening of our interior capacities to stay present to whatever is. So it's a funny thing, right? You can think of like a million things that happen in the world that you're like, oh my God, I could never do that. I could never run a marathon. I could never work that many hours in the week. I could never have that many kids. But it's harder for us. And I think in some ways, harder to conceive, to think about just being with yourself uninterrupted in silence and not moving for a long period of time. It's actually really extraordinary training. So just that ability to increase the capacity to really stay attendant to what is happening within oneself is something that for me has radically expanded my capacity to remain attendant to what is happening outside of me. It's like if I get really familiar with the physical sensations of discomfort when I might be sitting in a position meditating that's like a little bit off my center and like not super relaxing, um, then I can also learn what that feels like and be prepared when it comes up in conversation with someone or in response to, you know, these heartbreaking news headlines that we're hearing all the time. So I think that practice, the the contemplative practices, the thing, you know, and there is a contemplative practice in just about every major religious framework that exists. So they they look different, they're named different, the you know, the technicalities are a little different, but that contemplative piece where we're really with ourselves and with the silence and and with something that's bigger than us, that's essential. Uh, and I think the other thing that that for me has also created is that ability to trust in the thing that is bigger than I am. However you want to understand that, that might just be like ecological relationships in this vast web. It might be something divine or holy. It might be something that you name. But that relationship to something bigger than myself where I can carry my load, but then also kind of, you know, say a prayer and and give it up to the thing that's bigger than me that is holding the things I can't hold by myself. The second thing that comes to mind in terms of your question is really relationship. I had really formative experiences right when I was coming into college with some of the country's best community organizers and organizing trainers who were really grounded in relational organizing. Uh, it's a funny term because I like don't even understand what organizing would be absent relationships. And I think it's just really important. Uh, you know, those are relationships not only to just like the ability to walk out to the garden here to what's being grown and just being like totally dazzled that there are tomatoes coming out of the earth, like totally dazzled that these plants are drooping with fresh peppers. And you don't even have to do that much. Like it just happens. And that's amazing to just be in relationship and to touch in with these things that are really proximate. But then also just relationship to people, to community. Sangha or community is one of the three treasures in our practice, along with the teachings and the wisdom and then oneself. But also just, you know, relationships to people and the people who are around you. Is, I mean, you have been a critical person in my life in recent years, um, just thinking around how do we evolve our practices? How do we evolve our work in the world to really meet what these times demand of us? Um, so thought partnership, you know, visionary thought partnership, hopeful thought partnership, but then also just the relationships with folks you care about and who ground you. Like there's something really beautiful about being in the just in the moment, like what's what's happening with your friends, what's happening over dinner, um, the things that 
for me, give me a sense of vitality. Like these are the things that bring me to life. It is, these are the things that make life joyful, whether it's just like a quick walk outside of my house to see a beautiful lawn or whether it's like a quick touching base with a dear friend or with, you know, with a partner. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is that the social science actually, and this is where the work that I do at the Climate Advocacy Lab comes in, because we actually look at the evidence behind how we can engage the public on issues of climate change across a lot of different domains. And so what we see from the social science research is that we actually need people to feel a sense of fear around these issues. And I think, first of all, that's just a healthy human response. You're like, oh, this is really a big deal. I'm a little freaked out. I'm like, okay, good. You're responding healthily. But you need that to create a sense of urgency. In the absence of fear, there's not a real sense that we need to do something now that I might prioritize that over hanging out with my friends going on a walk, going to see a movie. But you don't want to leave folks in a place of fear. You actually also need to pair that with a sense of hope. And that's a really interesting thing too, because you actually don't want to leave people with only hope. What we see with messages that are only hopeful, and who knows if it, if that can even exist at this time, given what's going on with, with the climate, with the Amazon, with water, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you actually remove people's sense that something needs to be done. Um, There's a lot of polling that's gone on around the U.S. that has looked at folks in different states, like what percent of your state's energy portfolio do you think comes to renewable energy? And people will say like 80%, 90%, 75% in states where it's still like 3%, 6%, 12%. And folks are like, oh my gosh, I didn't, (laughs) I did not know that. That seems problematic, right? And so it shifts your perspective. But you actually need to have both of those things. And so I think that understanding the marriage between a sense of urgency and a sense of possibility is really important. We need one to motivate us to action. We need the other one to give us a sense that there are possibilities beyond what we currently know that we might not even have imagined, and yet that are still available to us if we are willing to step into the unknown or to keep searching for an unknown possibility to step into at all. So that's some of my thinking that goes into this that definitely spans just like, what am I doing to attend to my own interior, to how am I in relationship to the world around me and in this life in a way that brings me to life and keeps me engaged and keeps me uh, coming back to a state of awe and wonder. And then I, I do feel super lucky to be in the paid work that I am in which gives me access to all of this learning and understanding like what keeps people engaged on these issues and to know that both of the responses that I have, uh, my fear response, my hope response, and there's a ton of others too, right? There's more on that spectrum, uh, that those are not only both healthy, but that they're also both necessary. I really appreciate that, Lucia. I love what you shared on the balance between attentiveness and being in the present moment, I think those are qualities that you have in such abundance and so beautifully share and model for others. And something that you're speaking to that I would really love to hear more about is, and you've shared this with me before, but really your learnings from your climate advocacy work, particularly around communicating, because we have a lot of storytellers in the Loam community who I know are listening to this podcast and who are doing communications work in their own worlds. And I would love to hear more from you about what have been some core learnings from your work that could be a benefit to the storytellers and the sharers and the communication strategists in in Loam's constellation um, that could help us better connect and heal and regenerate during these times. 
Thanks, Kate. I'm, I love that you just invoked the Loam community. It made, gave me this like impulse to just feel like, hey, everyone, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for the gorgeous things that went into the last print edition of Loam. Uh, they're really inspiring and they're nourishing and they're expanding my perspectives. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot to say in answer to that question. And a lot of it, I'm going to just kind of make a plug right now, I guess. A lot of it is housed in the Climate Advocacy Lab. So climateadvocacylab.org, if you have questions, you can reach out. And the thing is, there's actually, in the last 10 years, in the same way that there was the whole hockey stick graph of carbon emissions going up, uh, that they took those measurements off of Mauna Kea, which that's also a conversation we could have today in some ways. Um, but there's been like an equal spike in the research that's happening in the social sciences around climate change in the last 10 years. That is, you know, psychological research, like what I just talked about in terms of individual emotions in response to the climate crisis. But it's also things like research in political science. What do we know about the components, the necessary components to power building that actually result in effective social movements, uh, you know, the fields of sociology, the fields of communications. So I say all of that because I'm not going to be able to cover it all in response to your question, but so that folks know, like, if you have some questions around this, uh, there are a lot of resources and a lot of the folks uh, in academia who are asking these questions and doing the surveys are really, really eager to connect with practitioners in the field, with ad advocates, with organizers to help run tests or do experiments or research in the context of activism and advocacy to really help us understand like what is working to move the needle on this issue politically and then what isn't. So all of that being said, uh, I do think that looking really closely at um, what your audience is, is a really important starting place. And that is what we advise when we work with folks on developing an audience-based communications campaign is really to think about who is your audience? What, like, why do they care about this issue? What brings them to it? Oftentimes if folks at organizations are developing a communications campaign or need to develop a comms plan in conjunction with their organizing campaign or whatever political campaign they're running and don't really know what their folks are, are worried about, we say like, well, go to your audience. Do like a quick, you can do a Google poll or a Google survey pretty inexpensively. Um, things like, and I don't know how much, you know, the mode of communication is relevant for your members, but for like a lot of folks who are doing email sends, uh, playing with the subject lines of emails and breaking them into two and seeing if there's a higher click rate or a higher open rate, stuff like that. And emails, like a, a really basic A-B test. There's really, really uh, kind of low cost, efficient, uh, just entry point ways of getting a sense of who is your audience. So that's that's a little bit different than what the social sciences would say in general about how to communicate on the issue. Uh, but I think it has to, what we know is that it does have to be specific to your audience and what they care about. And then to think about who are you as a messenger. Um, when we talk about the research, what we see is that Obviously, like if I'm carrying a particular message to a group of, let's say, rural, low-income, conservative, white folks, I probably won't be received very well if I don't have a relationship with them. If I do, you know, try to make the same effort with a group of like millennial, mixed race, pretty progressive, largely urban-dwelling folks, like I'm going to be received a little bit better because I have credibility 
in that space. So we also talk about source credibility, with whom do you have influence? And I do think one thing I would flag for folks, and this is the last thing I'll say on this because I feel like I'm getting really like cerebral and this is like my Stanford nerd side coming out, um, is that you want to just look at the kind of question of who do I really have credibility with and reach those folks because the research that's been done shows that we do have a majority of folks who are alarmed or concerned about climate change. And there's a pretty good argument to suggest that we should maybe focus on mobilizing those folks and not worry so much about the deniers and the folks who don't want to be part of this conversation, because we actually, in a lot of ways, we're not going to need them to make the political changes. We're going to need to bring them along but it's a lot of energy that's going into how do I persuade someone? How do, I, how do I convince someone? How do we understand climate denialism in general? And given the urgency of this moment, and I think this might, you know, loam contributors are probably already here, but really thinking deeply about how do I grow the community that I have credibility with and move us in a direction of collective action taking, which helps build our sense that it is possible to make an impact bigger than what I'm capable of doing alone versus trying to think through how do I reach out to people who aren't really that excited about, you know, reading my piece or listening to my blog. Um, you can move in the direction of the folks who are, who are with you because at this point we have a majority who are with us at least in this country. Um, okay, well, first of all, I love when your Stanford nerd comes out. It's so <laughs> beautiful and exciting. And all of that, I was like furiously journaling too. Um, so so thank you for sharing. Um, something I want to highlight that you said that I really appreciated was asking yourself the question, like, who are you as a messenger? Like really getting to know who you are and why you are situated to convey or communicate a certain story or idea or possibility. And so I'd love to hear from you, who are you as a messenger? How do you define that for yourself? And how does that shape your work with Reconstitute, which is an incredible new initiative of yours that you've been bringing to life? Wow, that's an amazing question. Um, thank you for asking something that I have not been asked to articulate. Um, I, I would say that for me, I came into the environmental movement in this country into the mainstream. And I knew that, and I was kind of like warned about that. Um, which is to say, I went into a large green organization that's well known in the United States and, you know, white led in terms of the board, in terms of the majority of members, in terms of the majority of staff uh, and old, like, you know, 50 years old. Um, this isn't really going to sound like news to anyone who's familiar with uh, that type of organization. But it was a moment for me where my being a person of color, which is a little bit, I think I usually refer to myself as someone who's mixed um, because I, I do have a lot of white privilege and I am half white. But it was one of my first really deep experiences. And mind you, this is like after grad school that it was just made so clear to me by the people around me that I was not part of that group, that I was like something different. Um, there was a man that I worked with who had run uh, Spanish language comms for the Obama administration in D.C. And he was from L.A. and went like, no one told me that I was Latino until I got to D.C. because I'd grown up in L.A. and like everyone 
<laughs> not everyone, but you know, he was like, everyone's Latin out there. And then, or like, there's a lot of brown people. And then you get to DC and all of a sudden you're like, have I just gone back 50 years? Because in these halls, you know, when I'm in the Senate office buildings, when I'm in advocacy meetings with coalitions, there are a lot of white people and not a lot of not white people. So that was a real, um, that was a real moment for me of, you know, I'd carried that identity already. Like these are things that you don't get to like choose and pick up and put down. Um, they're things that are in a lot of ways put on you and you live with them. But as a moment of really understanding that I have a role as a messenger, quote unquote, um, specifically as a translator. I grew up biracial. I grew up bilingual. I grew up going back and forth between um, where my dad is from, although we have Irish heritage on that side, um, which is the States, and where my mom is from, which is Guatemala. And so those things, and I think this is true for a lot of people, there's actually really interesting research on folks who are bicultural or biracial um, really good at code switching, really good at like literally being able to switch languages. I was born and raised in Santa Fe, New Mexico, one of the first states in this country to be what is often referred to as quote unquote majority minority. It's more than 50% population that's non-white. And I didn't ever have difficulty switching between English and Spanish to communicate with people. We're also a border state in New Mexico. That's kind of a unique experience, right? But then I've, you know, as I've continued to to live in this lifetime, that ability has played itself out in a lot of different places to be working in a predominantly white organization with a very strong ability to bridge to Latino led organizations at a national level. That's what my work ended up being. Like, how do we become, how do I move the organization in which I find myself into a position as an ally and bridge build to organizations that actually have relationships with the communities that are disproportionately impacted and move resources and expertise in that direction. So for me, that's where I've seen a lot of my identity come out is really just in the how do you uh, switch between essentially worldviews. And I think that's a really, really beautiful thing with folks who are coming up now. I know that uh, we millennials get a lot of flack, but I think that there is a big proportion of our generation who, because of the connectivity that we get the flack for, we're like plugged in and, you know, but there is an exposure to the world being not only a lot bigger than prior generations necessarily had the ability to access, interact with more directly, but also a lot smaller. Like you start getting to know people who are different than you are and you're like, oh, you're still human. Hey, me too. Um, so I think that that's actually, you know, it's something that has at times felt unique to me when I take a step back and think about like how many of my friends or how many of the people that I know had biracial parents or, or you know, parents who were of different races. Um, not that many, uh, still not that many, but I think it's a really, really interesting role that is out more in the world. And that's just able to do a lot of that really critical bridge building and translating and helping us understand one another. And then I, you know, just, I think it bears saying, I also recognize that I have a huge amount of privilege. I, it's, it like cracks me up that you included the fact that I went to Stanford in my introduction, because, it, you know, one of the effects that that can have is like, it, it sheds, sheds this like golden shadow. Um, it confers a lot of like, whoa, you must be special. And I don't, you know, I'm special in the sense that that gave me a lot of educational privilege and in many ways, class privilege and access other people don't have. 
Um, but it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of things about me that that doesn't change. It just means that as someone who is very light skinned, as someone who speaks multiple languages, as, as someone who is very highly educated and um, has had a lot of opportunities, there's also a responsibility to that. And I, I feel that really, really strongly. I I really value so much of that, Lucia. Thank you for sharing. And I think it is beautiful to hear from you how you show up as a messenger, because I do think that there's a way you're doing that is unique and important and impactful. And I would love, um, you know, we we have only a few minutes left in our conversation. Um, and I really want to bring it back to the work you're doing now with Reconstitute to kind of help people understand who they are as messengers um, and connect people within the environmental space um, into being catalysts for change. And so I'm wondering if you could share more on Reconstitute and your vision for moving forward with it um, and how also the Loam community can be a part of holding space for that big vision. Thanks so much, Kate. And thanks for bringing me back. I know you mentioned Reconstitute previously, and I just had so much to say about the first half of your question. Um, so I, as Kate mentioned, as you mentioned, um, we got to know each other through Calliopeia Foundation's Spiritual Ecology Fellowship, where I came in with the project that I was incubating and I'm still incubating, although we ran a pilot uh, in the last year, where I was really, really curious and feel really committed to how do we support young rising leaders in the climate justice movement in this country with the resources that are undervalued in many of our movements to be able to support ourselves to really stay in this for the long haul. So let me break that down for a second because I was a little abstract. Folks who work in political spaces, in activist spaces, or even just on issues that are urgent and potentially really anxiety-provoking, like climate change, it can be all sorts of other things, immigration reform, LGBTQ rights, things like that. You know, it demands a lot of us as individuals, but we go into these workplaces in a culture that values productivity, and there's no end point to how much you give, to how much you produce, to how much you work. Like, it's the culture, and then it's combined with the fact that, like, there's no week in which I'm going to be like, woohoo, I'm done with climate change. Okay, wrapped up that project, right? Like, there are these intersecting realities of the culture in which we find ourselves, and then the moment in which we find ourselves that suggests that we should maybe just work endlessly all the time, and that that's what's required to actually address these issues. What I was seeing when I went into advocacy at a national level and into more standard organizing, and I, you know, mind you, I've got one foot in a like 501c3 nonprofit world. I also have one foot through my affiliation work with an organization called Left Roots and a much more kind of base building, movement building, um, leftist perspective on these issues. So, you know, holding both of those things like burnout things like existential angst, things like how you work with unknowns versus knowns are not valued. Um, But I was seeing a lot of young folks, particularly folks who were um, BIPOC, coming into the movement with just a deep understanding that the way that we've been approaching this work also needs to evolve, that we're not being supported. So you kind of end up building community with folks outside of your organization, but then it's like an additional burden because you don't have time to spend time with those people. Like it's just, it's kind of a mess. And so Reconstitute is intended to be an intervention into 
young leaders in the climate justice movement who are on the rise to help support the development of their consciousness and of the culture in which they work so that how we are approaching our work not only involves the exterior of what we do, it's not just the work plan that I have and the deliverables I have to meet for my boss. It's not just this organizational strategy and this campaign plan. It is also how I'm doing things that actually capacitate me to be more effective. Can I deal with uncertainty or fundamental irresolvability of some of these issues in a more elegant way? Can I learn some of these skills that don't rely on science and empiricism, but actually do rely on faith? Like, what is the role of faith in this moment when we don't know what's going to happen? Like, not knowing freaks us out. And either we either fall back into some earlier frame that we want to explain everything, or we have to step forward in the dark in some metaphorical sense and have faith that there's going to be another step in front of us. So that's the con- you know that's the consciousness piece. There's a lot of different layers there, but then also the culture. How do we return to our humanity as the starting place from which we reach out to other people? Uh, one of my deep concerns, like one of the things that keeps me up at night, so to speak, is that we as a political generation are steeped in identity politics. And it is very important to be able to differentiate and to know that my identity as a mixed person is a little bit different than yours, Kate, as a white person, and that we have different roles and that, you know, there's a lot of difference to look at and to value there. But what scares me about our generation is that in some way we are being supported to get stuck in those differences and to not be willing to move through them to work with them not as forces of division, but as forces that generate creativity, um, as forces that shape and reshape us. Like I think of you and the other spiritual ecology fellows as the whetstone against which I lay myself to sharpen, right? Like we need each other and it's uh, it's not easy and it's not a popular thing to say, but that's again where the spiritual grounding comes in, where when you really do have an experienced understanding that there is no difference between us, then you can come back into the relative differences uh, with a little bit more spaciousness to get curious about them, to work with them. So really, you know, how do we break past this culture of otherizing one another because we so much value the richness of our differences, but then to also use those differences as fodder for creativity and for the generativity that comes from what happens when you put two perspectives together instead of just collapsing them down into one. And that ability to hold more and more perspectives, to hold more and more complexity, isn't that essential? We're looking at problems that are more complex than any problems we've ever seen. And so we're going to have to be able to hold more at an individual level, but that means not collapsing into me versus you. But what is the integration that happens from those differences and how do we really begin to work those? So it's a, you know, reconstitute at base is a leadership development program that doesn't focus on like the smarty skills, the the specific measurable, actionable, blah, blah, blah. It focuses on the intangibles. What is your response to conflict? How do you show up and hold people accountable from a place of really being supportive of them, even if they need to be held accountable? What does it look like to approach a meeting not needing to know the outcome, but being open to the possibility that by integrating other people's perspectives, we're actually going to decide on an outcome that's going to be more expansive, more comprehensive, 
And then I think, and maybe this will be the last thing I say about this, I think also really working on, again, not collapsing into dualities. I think right now, one of the things that a lot of people our age are falling into is a very one-sided value of pluralism and consensus-based work and that everyone needs to have a voice in the mix. And it's not, I'm not saying that that's not true, but I'm, I also think that this moment does call for the efficiency and the quickness that hierarchy can afford. So it's not, I want to be really clear about this, it's not one or the other, but it is how do we really flesh out that full spectrum for ourselves? Can I be a really strong individual leader? Can I be a very strong individual follower? Can I be a very strong collective leader working with other people? Can I be a very strong collective follower working with other people? So we have all of those skills at our, um, at our fingertips because there are some cases in which we don't have a huge amount of time and that sometimes decisions need to be made quickly. Like I realize this is a, this is a whole hornet's nest. I'm not saying like we don't have time for consensus-based meetings. It's not what I'm saying. But it is to caution against moving completely away from some of the efficiency that comes with knowing when one person is empowered by the group to make a decision and that everyone follows, right? Because we're, we're not always going to be right. Sometimes we have to move forward saying, I disagree with you, but I don't know that what you're proposing is going to cause us to move backward or to hurt us. And so I'm willing to try it and to actually have like a material data set to work off of to further inform our decisions and, and to engage in that iterative process but instead of needing to differentiate and just say, well, I guess we can't work together. So it's really just re-examining like, how do we really work on the interiors of ourselves as individuals, our consciousness, our subjectivity, our feelings, our faith, our intuition, and the actual cultures that we're creating um, to push them beyond what we've known and beyond what we've been taught in a way that I think a lot of young people are intuitively in touch with because we're, we're back in touch with the deep connection we have to this world and to one another. Um, I don't know if that was really lost or just obfuscated, um, but I think folks who are young right now, and you can see it, you can see it in the movement, it's the young folks who are at the lead and it's because there's a certain moral clarity that we have. I think I just aged out of the youth bracket. I turned 30 this year. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just hat tip to those who come next. Thank you for all of that, Lucia, for all of the questions that you raised in that last answer. And I think you also totally still count in the youth bracket. <laughs> you're, you're still very much, very much in the movement, but there was so much to unpack in there. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing those questions. And to our listeners, let's like definitely keep this conversation alive. Um, and thank you again so much, Lucia, for sharing. It's such a gift you know, to have a friend who you can both like totally go in on tarot with and talk about like climate <laughs> policy with. Yeah. So I love and appreciate that so much. And, and thanks for being with us here today. Thank you so much, Kate. I really, I love you and I love Loam. I'm just grateful to be given the opportunity. Beautiful. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, it's so sweet to connect with you all through this platform, and I hope that we'll continue the conversation online. Um, you can follow at Loam Love on Instagram or check out our website, loamlove.com, as well as in person. And I want to also give a big thanks to the amazing Isaac Silk for producing and editing our podcast, and to Isaac Silk and Faith Harding for the beautiful intro music. 
All right, that's all for today. Check out the show notes and we'll talk soon.